Oh God, we give you thanks and praise for our friends, our brother and sister in Christ, Donat and Ruth, and for the work that you have called them to do in Austria. Oh God, we pray humbly for the privilege of being partners in that sharing of the gospel with them. And we ask, God, that you would pour out your most powerful blessings, your strength, your power to equip them to share the gospel with every man, woman, boy, and girl that they meet, especially with the students in Donut's care. To the end, Lord, that glory and power and majesty would be given to you and that you would indeed complete that good work which you have so faithfully begun. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a series entitled The Artisan Soul, and together we are exploring the biblical idea of creativity and beauty. And together we are discovering that to create is really a part of what it means to be human. To create is to fulfill a part of our divine intention. To create is to reflect the image of God. And today we're going to look at how beauty and creativity are acts of worship. Now people often think that creativity only exists where there are no rules, no boundaries, no limits, that anything and everything goes. But the reality is that every canvas an artist uses has limits. Every artist, him or herself, has limitations. And in fact, creativity is dependent upon those boundaries. Stop and think about it for a moment. We can see the beauty in God's creation because creation is doing exactly what God designed it to do. And one of the things creation does is to proclaim the wonders of God, to glorify God's name. Have you ever sat out on your deck at night and seen the night sky so filled with stars as they travel across that black canvas that all you could do was just shrink back and feel how vast and how big our creator God must be. Or have you ever sat there listening to a night symphony of crickets and bullfrogs and hoot owls while enjoying the light show of fireflies and just smiled to yourself at how they glorify God just by doing what they were made to do? Or have you ever gotten up early in the morning to go down to the beach or climb to the top of a hill and watch that glowing orange sphere of the sun peek its face up over the horizon, knowing that in God's faithfulness, he has created yet another new day for us, and the heavens are proclaiming it just like God made them to do. Well, the psalmist felt those things too, just like you and I do, and he wrote about some of them in Psalm 103. Listen to a part of that psalm. It says, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. You see, the psalmist observes creation doing what it was created to do, and he can do nothing more than burst into worship. 
Well, one of the most profound visions of what worship looks like in heaven is found in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. There, John is given a vision of the heavenly throne room. And what he sees is a beautiful vision of what the worship of God looks and sounds like in the heavenly realm. Now, you have to know that when John received this vision from God, he was in a prison camp, of all places, on the isolated island of Patmos, which is a barren, rocky little piece of land way out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And Rome often sent her political prisoners there. I mean, think about it. It's like Alcatraz. You can't get off of that island. You just sit there for the rest of your life. John writes that he was sent there because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And the Roman emperor was actively persecuting Christians throughout the empire and throwing the leaders of the church in jail. And so times were really hard for followers of Christ. And so John has this vision, and then he writes it down to encourage his readers. I think it's good for us to think of Revelation not so much as a mystery book that's hard to understand about the end of times, but as a call to persevere in the face of difficulty. It is a strange book, and it's often hard to understand because it's written in a form that we don't use very much in our modern day and age. It's, it's an example of apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic is a word that comes from Greek, and what it means is revelation, hence our English word for, for the book. It's a kind of writing that is very symbolic, uses lots of symbolism, esoteric kind of language, and um, it contains often strange animals and lots of numbers, and it's a kind of literature that always talks about end times or a time when this present age that we know becomes the age to come, when God's kingdom comes in fullness and completion. There are other examples like this in the Bible, the book of Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, for example. But in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, John gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And this is what he sees. He writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard At first, speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne and surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing and these were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center of the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. 
the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whatever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things And by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. You see, John is given an amazing opportunity to get a glimpse into heaven. And as he looks, what does he see? He sees worship, doesn't he? He sees heavenly worship taking place. And what is at the center of this heavenly worship? The throne. The throne of God. And who is on that throne? God. God is at the center of heavenly worship. And through the eyes of John, you and I get a glimpse of what our true and ultimate reality will be one day. That is that we'll be living in God's kingdom, worshiping him in all of God's beauty and splendor. Think back to what that must have meant for John and the first readers of this writing that John wrote down. It would have meant everything for them. It would have been a powerful reminder that God is on the throne That his power, his glory, his might, his majesty, his lordship are what ultimately matter. It would have told those first hearers in a powerful way that God is in control. Not the emperor in Rome. Not all the unfortunate circumstances. Not the persecution they're facing. But God alone is in control of the universe. And this is why we worship. It reminds us of this truth that God is on the throne of our lives too. That hasn't changed. And there's another reason why we worship. And this may surprise you. Is that praise is nothing more than the spontaneous overflow of our enjoyment. When you experience God, you can't help but worship Psalm 96 puts it this way. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. I believe there are two amazing things that we learn about worship in Scripture And here is the first one, that God delights in our worship. When you think about it, I can't imagine why God would delight in our worship. I mean, he's got heaven and the Trinity and the angels and the archangels. But 
God delights in our worship. And here's the other amazing thing, that we are also to delight when we offer our worship to God. I mean, honor and reverence for God is a good thing, but often we use that to keep God at an arm's length, don't we? That we're afraid to get too close to God. We think that the idea of actually enjoying being in God's presence seems somehow odd or wrong because God is so big. That worship maybe is supposed to be good for us like medicine is good for us, right? But the reality is God delights in our worship and we are to delight in him. God doesn't need our worship, but we need to worship God. God created us like the rest of creation with a need to worship God. Creation, indeed, in all of its beauty, worships God. And the beauty, that beauty of creation, that beauty that's a part of everything God made is meant to be reflected in our worship. Because others are going to see our worship in our worship, the reflection of the beauty of God in us. And so as we read through Scripture, it becomes clear that we were created to worship and to do God's will. This doesn't limit us. In fact, it unleashes us. It, it frees us because worship, a lot like obedience, is, is surrendering something to something greater than us. To worship means to honor and submit to the greatness of God. You see, we were created to worship. We were created with the need to worship. And, and everyone in the entire world does worship. Even atheists and agnostics and people who hardly believe in God worship. Because the truth is, everyone worships something, right? I mean, if we don't worship God, then we'll find something else to worship. That was a constant temptation since the beginning of, of humankind. Throughout the Old Testament, it's a constant temptation for the people of God. It's a constant temptation for us still today, isn't it? Oh, our idols might look different than they used to. It might be our favorite sports team that we rabidly cheer or money or power or sex or fitness. And the list could go on and on, couldn't it? But worship anything other than God and it will become your idol. Worship anything other than God and it will begin to eat you up alive. If you worship money, you'll never have enough of it. If you worship the body, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship power, you'll always be able to find somebody else that you think has just a little bit more than you. And that's why the second commandment of the 10 is so important. God says you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A jealous God. What does that mean, that God is jealous? You know, it's often a temptation for us to give anthropomorphic qualities to God, human qualities to God. And when we hear the word jealous, we usually hear it as a negative word, don't we? Because we think about it in terms of our own relationships. I'm jealous of you, or you're jealous of me about something, but... Jealousy isn't always a bad thing. 
I mean, when you think about it, there's a certain jealousy that's needed in order to protect the integrity of relationships. To say yes to one thing, to one person, means that we will say no to others. It's exclusive. You see, there's that idea again that worship is surrendering to something that you see as greater than yourself. And nothing and no thing is greater or more beautiful or more creative or more powerful or more loving or more anything than God. I want you to notice something else about the worship that John observes and describes in heaven. It's pretty intense, isn't it? I mean, every sense that God gave us is used in worship. Our eyes, our ears, our nose, our mouth, even our sense of touch. There's, there's praise and thanksgiving. There's incense that's filling the throne room and, and reaching God. And it's physical, isn't it? They're falling down. They're casting their crowns before the throne in acts of total surrender. Our English word liturgy comes from the Greek word which means the work of of the people. Our liturgy is not just the words printed on the page in our Sunday morning program. It's the work that we do as the people of God in offering our praise to God. We speak, we move, we taste, we feel, we sing, we sit, we stand, we listen, we pray. It's physical. God's vision of worship in heaven is also noisy and visual, isn't it? There's flashes of lightning and loud peals of thunder. They play harps and in a loud voice they sing, worthy is the lamb. So if you like your worship to be quiet and satate and meditative, I don't know what you're going to think about worship in heaven, but it's pretty amazing according to John's writing of it. Well, finally, there's a lot of singing and music in heavenly worship. In fact, in verse 8, it says, they never cease to sing. So you know when our choir sings, when we sing, when we play music to the glory of God, we are imitating. No, we are participating in the worship that's going on in heaven and on earth simultaneously. Our word for worship comes from the same word as worth. In fact, in Old English, the word is actually worth-ship. In other words, we worship something to which we ascribe worth. And when we truly experience and begin to comprehend the worth and the worthiness of God, then we're ready to give up anything, everything that we have to him. We give up control. We're willing to cast down our crowns, to give up our false idols, even lay down our lives. When we worship Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain and the lamb who is worthy, Jesus becomes the number one priority in our life. And it is then that we begin to discover that if we want a life of joy and beauty and wonder, that we have to lay our crowns before the throne of God. God has to be the most important priority in our life. And it begins to affect the way we view and handle our money. It begins to affect the career choices that we make. It begins to affect the way we handle our relationships. 
Sometimes we have to start asking ourselves some really hard questions. And sometimes there even has to be a radical reorganization of our life's priorities. And when we give up control to the one who is worthy, it is then that we begin to feel our worth true too. That intrinsic divine worth that God breathed into us that we talked about in week one of this series. And you know what? The paradox is this, that when we give up everything to the one who is worthy, then we receive in return everything so much more than we can ask or imagine. Well, we've talked a little bit about why we worship and how we worship. And finally, I want to talk about who we worship. And John answers that question for us in chapter 5 also. John sees a mighty angel holding a scroll with seven seals, but no one is worthy to open the scroll. And so John begins to weep uncontrollably. And then one of the elders comes and comforts him with these words. He says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, appears and takes the scroll. And all heaven breaks out in worship. And John writes, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Friends, worship is not about us. It's about Jesus. He alone is worthy. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with self to attend to the presence of God. But how often do we approach God in worship saying, well, I'm here today, God. What are you going to do for me? (laughs) What am I going to get out of this today, God? Sometimes our worship isn't meant for God at all, is it, but us. And I'm not saying that that's totally wrong. I mean, after all, there is clearly a sense that worship is for us too. We participate in it and we do get something out of it. The problem is our self-concern and and self-preoccupation also degenerates into nothing but self-absorption. Too often I calculate the value of worship in terms of what it means for me. And if we either evaluate its worth on the basis of personal gain or pragmatism, if I get something out of it, then worship is good. If I don't feel like I get anything out of it, then worship is bad that day. It's been interesting for me today thinking about preaching this and hearing it preached um, already this morning by Mark Rowland and, and how often during the course of today even I'm thinking, oh, I like this song or I don't like that song. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, stay focused, Mark. You're going to preach about the opposite thing in just a minute. Well, you know, sometimes we evaluate worship from kind of a utilitarian perspective. We want to know if, if changing worship or something that we do is going to attract more people to us. Will it help us grow as a church? Does it suit the, the marketplace in which we find ourselves, the community, what people want? Is it competitive with what other churches in our area are doing? 
Well, at least that might consider what someone else wants over what I just want, but it's still human-centered, isn't it, rather than God-centered. Maybe, just maybe, worship isn't about getting something from Jesus, although let's face it, we always do in the process, don't we? Maybe worship is really about me offering something, everything, to Jesus. What if the true value of worship can't be calculated in terms of what I take away with me when I walk out the door? But what if the real value is measured in what I leave at the feet of Jesus? Now, I'm not suggesting that your feelings are irrelevant in worship. I'm not saying that you should shut down when you come into the worship space because worship isn't about being disengaged, is it? We've already talked about that. At the heart of worship is engagement, our engagement, and not just our emotions or feelings, but all of us, our body, our mind, our spirit. It's not about us. It's not about our likes or dislikes. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our comfort. It's not about what I can get out of God. It is about God. God is at the center of worship. God is the one who is meant to watch worship, the only one. God is the spectator. We are the participants. It's like that in heaven, and so it is with worship on earth. There is only one spectator, God. And the rest of us are to do what we are designed to do, to be active participants Now, the choir up front may be the conductors, but all of us are the orchestra, not the audience. So it doesn't matter what others might think about the way you worship. It only matters what God thinks about worship. I remember in a church that I used to serve once a year, only once a year, there was a man, an elderly, a very elderly man in our congregation that would sing a solo I'm changing the name to protect the innocent, but his name was Elbert. Elbert could not carry a tune in a bucket. But once a year, he offered his voice to God. And from a human perspective, I will say that sometimes it was painful to listen to Elbert. Oftentimes, I chose not to look at him for fear of what my face might give away. But every year as I sat there listening to him, I knew in the deepest core of my being that that voice sounded nothing like I heard it sounding when it reached God's ears. I know that it was the sweetest, most beautiful, most clear music to God's ears because it came from a heart of love for God straight from Elbert to that throne. Verse 24 says, The elders fell down and cast their crowns before God. You see, this is nothing less than a spontaneous gesture of total submission to God. And true worship is like that. That's why the worship of God is the most important thing we will ever do. And so I challenge you to think about this question for just a moment. What would it look like if you began to get to worship 15 minutes early instead of running in the door just a little bit late? What if you went and you got your coffee and said hi to a few friends, you greeted a few folks and got your kids checked in and then you found your seat? 
what would happen if then you bowed your head and started to pray and the work of worship really began? What if you prayed that God would speak to your heart and give you your marching orders for the week ahead? What if you prayed that God would speak to your fellow worshipers and for the folks who are up front helping to lead worship? What if you prayed that God would bring some new people through the doors this day that that need to hear a word from God? What if you got honest with God and confessed your sins before God for this past week and asked for forgiveness? What if you asked that through your worship and through your life that God's beauty and God's glory and God's splendor would be seen by everyone that sees you. You see, the aim of worship isn't for us to get what we want, but to give God what God wants, our worship. And sometimes, by God's grace, our worship transcends all of our own small desires, and it accomplishes just what God wants, worship to the glory and the honor and the praise and the majesty and the power of his name. Let all God's people say amen. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks and praise for you delight in our worship. And God, we want to tell you how much we love you. We want to show you how much we love you. We want to lay down all of our crowns and and offer you our lives, our hearts, our everything, God. Oh, lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, you are so worthy. Help us in this week ahead to transcend our wants and desires so that we offer to you what you long for our deepest worship, and then help others to see your beauty, your spirit, your everything alive in us because we know that that will draw the world to you. We pray in the power of Christ's name. Amen.